Welcome to another edition of Focus on Alternatives, brought to you by ADISA, the Alternative and Direct Investment Securities Association. I'm Damon Elder, publisher of the DIYer.com, and I'm joined today by John Grady, longtime board member of ADISA and the co-chair of the association's Legislative and Regulatory Affairs Committee. Thanks for joining me today, John. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. So obviously, we're going to talk about legislative and regulatory matters that are impacting the investment community, and there's a lot. We have a lot to cover today. We could go on for hours. We don't have hours, so let's dive right in. Um, I want to start with the DOL. DOL's reared its head back up. Two proposed rules they've submitted to the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, the White House. Uh, the first is the redux of the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. We don't know exactly what's in the rule, but high suspicion that it's going to be very similar to the original Department of Labor fiduciary rule that was introduced during the Obama administration. What have you heard? What should we expect? Et cetera, et cetera. Well, it is hard to separate fact from rumor because we haven't seen anything. But best as we can tell, the focus is still on defining a fiduciary. Now, what the DOL did in 2016 is well beyond defining what a fiduciary was doing by his or her actions and focusing as well on what kind of recommendations and services and uh, activities did they thereafter engage in. And how could those be subject to a fiduciary standard? What we've seen so far is, by, the, uh, by remarks made by senior DOL staffers, is they're still focusing on who is a fiduciary. That's still where their rulemaking had started. It's where they want to be now. And what they want to capture, if we understand things correctly, is the act of being advised as a retirement plan participant to roll your assets out of a 401k or a similar defined benefit or even defined contribution plan and into an IRA or other self-directed plan that might have a far broader menu without the fiduciary protections. What they're trying to do is both ensure that the, if the advice is given to you, it's given by somebody who's gonna be deemed a fiduciary when they're giving you that advice so you, you can essentially hold them accountable for what they do the stories are legion of folks being rolled out of very protective 401k plans into all asset, all IRA, all gold type accounts. And then the Department of Labor wants to stop that more than anything else. Whether they go all the way to the 2016 mark and actually come up with, with prohibitions on the conduct once they are named a fiduciary, that's a different story that we don't know. Okay, well, we'll find out pretty soon. Um, the other thing that the DOL has landed at the White House is the, in, um, the independent contractor rule. This is a broader rule. It's not focused entirely on the investment space, but would certainly have a big impact on it. So the Financial Services Institute and others uh, have come out and have been extremely critical. I've asked for it to be withdrawn. Members of the House have done similar, but here it is. It's coming. So what are we looking for here? Are we going to be going to the mattresses on this one? What would the impact be, particularly on the advisory committee or community, if this rule comes out as we expect it to? So kind of taking it in reverse, what I think the industry is concerned about is a lot of the employment relationships that are in our industry are independent contractor relationships. It means that, that people are working as an independent contractor vis-a-vis -vis an employer, even if they carry the employer's card, they're not being paid benefits. They basically pay for their own professional expenses. What uh, the concern is, is that the new version of the independent contractor definition will take folks out of that status and put them into employee status on the theory that they're really not independent contractors. They're more like an employee and therefore they deserve the benefits and they'll have the protections of the employment relationship, which they don't have when they're independent contractors. Maybe this rule was aimed more at the tech and gig worker uh, parts of the economy 
but it's not, by all we can see, it's not going to be limited to it. And that's why the industry is nervous, because a lot of employment relationships could be upset by a definition that sweeps who are folks who are currently independent contractors into being employees in the future. That could have a major impact on broker-dealers and advisors. And a lot of the advisors want that independent structure, don't they? It's why a lot of them left where they were and became an independent contractor. They feel like they're in charge of their own business. They spend their budgets on what they want to spend their budgets on, and they don't have to feel like they're taking orders from the top. They are really, in their minds, acting as independent businessmen. And so I think they'd be upset to lose that status as well. So let's pivot for a moment to the legislative side of things. Um, two things that are constantly being discussed and are of concern in the community are opportunity zones, which are scheduled to sunset in the coming years. Um, now in the last Congress, there was bipartisan legislation introduced in both the House and Senate. We've basically seen a duplication of those bills introduced again, bipartisan basis in the House and Senate. Nothing's happened yet. Should we expect anything before the expiration of this Congress going into another presidential year? Our read is no, uh, that it doesn't have the priority, uh, the legislative priority, if you will, to get through when other bills that might be housed also in the tax code, which Opportunity Zone funds are, it's, an, it's a tax benefit, essentially. There are other tax-related bills that are of higher priority, so we keep hearing we're behind them, uh, or the Opportunity Zone legislation is behind them. So it's a matter of, can we, can we get them to the top in this Congress? The word is probably not. Will they be around for the next Congress? The word is no reason to think they won't be. That's a surefire, a long way from being a guarantee. Of course, uh, on the Capitol Hill and Washington in general, the closer you get to a deadline, like I guess in every aspect of life, the more likely people are on to act on it. And so in 2025, maybe we'll see these bills get a little more traction. So what people think is Opportunity Zone funds and the whole Opportunity Zone legislation still works. Right. You just don't get the same length of, of uh, deferral period before you have to pay the gains on your deferred uh, uh, rollover gains, but the still the underlying benefit is still there. So what they're dealing with is something that is good but could be improved as opposed to something that's broken or will sunset or disappear if it's not acted on. That, probably as much as anything, is why it doesn't get a greater priority. Well, we'll watch and see what happens. Um, so sticking to the Hill, in the House just before they went into summer recess, um, on, again, on a massively bipartisan basis, which is unusual at the best of times, certainly right now, we saw the House pass three bills, I think at least one, maybe two, by voice vote. Uh, that would have expanded, or will expand, the definition of an accredited investor. Yes. Um, those bills now obviously have been moved over to the Senate where they have sat, no action has been taken. Um, What's going to happen there? Are we hopeful that the Senate may take these up, or are they going to die a slow death there? Well, there's certainly the hope that the Senate will take it up. There's, uh, unfortunately, the reality is that there's no seeming intentionality on the Senate's part, which would require action by a particular senator, Sherrod Brown, who has shown no inclination to do so. The Senate would have to pick it up in the Senate Banking Committee to move it forward, move any of those bills forward. And with the absence of any real indication that they're willing to do so, you kind of have to assume that, that nothing's going to happen, at least until there would be a, either a change in the population or even the party controlling the, the committees in the Senate uh, to change leadership and therefore get somebody who might move those bills through. So when we went and talked to various parts of Capitol Hill, we made the point that those bills were, were really important and we heard a lot of sympathy. We heard a lot of, yes, we're in this uh, with you, but what we didn't hear was any willingness on the Democrats' part in the Senate Banking Committee to pick up those bills and move with them. 
So despite the overwhelming bipartisan nature of the bills, at least in the House, you've got to get past at least one man in the Senate, and then we'd see if the Democrats in the Senate agree with their House colleagues. And the problem is that it's not as if this particular senator has come out and said, I won't do this. Right. It's just that the senator priority. has done nothing and there's no echo. There's no conversation. His staff's not reaching out to House staff to talk about what a, what a, uh, a mutual set of, of language would look like. Instead, what you have is nothing. And when you have nothing, you get no movement, but you also don't know why not. But all we have right now is no movement, no sense that anything's coming. Well, the accredited investor definition is obviously keenly important. Um, and we're not just seeing congressional action, at least on one part of the Hill, um, in that regard, but also the SEC is expected and I believe statutorily required to review the definition on an ongoing basis, and they're scheduled to do that this year. That's right. Under Commissioner Gary Gensler, I think the scuttlebutt is that they will take a more discerning eye and try to reduce the number of accredited investors Again, I'm going to lean on you for what you've been hearing and what do you think is going to happen. So those bills that we were just talking about were congressional responses to making the definition broader. But the SEC is mandated to look at, not act on, but look at, is whether a change to the definition is, in their minds, the appropriate thing to do at four-year intervals. And unfortunately, 2023 is another one of those four-year intervals. Nothing was done in 19. Nothing was done in 15. But the sense, as you say, is that this is an activist commission. Chair Gensler has not come out in favor of or said anything to tip his hand, but there's a general sense that this is not a commission that would shy away from taking on the question of whether the definition should be amended. And by all accounts that we hear, uh, it would likely be amended to either increase the wealth number or effectively shrink the number of people who qualify as accredited investors by making the criteria harder than they are now to meet and we as an industry are concerned that folks will be excluded from accredited investor status, many of whom have just made accredited investor status because of the indexing, as it's called. But in fact, index, indexing has already occurred. It occurred when the houses were removed from the net worth uh, test in the first place. But more importantly, an indexing that uses, for example, a measure of inflation to adjust it could have a, the, the, the effect of removing as much as 40 to 50 percent of the person uh, or the, the, the headcount of who would currently qualify as an accredited investor, just remove them entirely, which could have disparate impacts on new savers. Uh, it could have impacts on older savers. We even think there are potential minority and other kinds of uh, unfortunate impacts on groups that we're trying to encourage to be savers and to turn around and take them out of the private uh, fund offering space by, by changing the definition to exclude them on a wealth basis would be detrimental. Um, well, let's stick with the SEC for a bit. As you mentioned, Commissioner Gensler has been very active. Uh, the commission is following his lead. Um, we have seen a lot on the rulemaking front from the SEC under Chairman Gensler, uh, and that is ongoing. It seems every other week we're seeing new things come down. A big one that came down in just the last couple of weeks was the new private funds rule. Uh, it will have a massive impact. We can't spend too much time on it, but why don't you give us the big picture Who's it impact? What's it do? Do we like it or not? Well, the last one's hard to, right. to address in any amount of time. Um, but I think it's important to understand the, that, you know, this is a continuation of what is really a long-running uh, or long-standing commission interest in regulating private funds by regulating the advisors to private funds. That's all they have jurisdiction over, right? right? The private funds are excluded from their reach, but by regulating the advisors, 
they can uh, make changes in the private fund regime that are pretty impactful. In this case, I think the major things to take away are number one, a quarterly performance report that will go to investors in a standardized format using standardized approaches to calculating performance. Uh, second, uh, a number of provisions that, that, that relate to uh, how firms can essentially enter into side letter agreements with investors. Right now, it's a pretty prominent and prevalent practice to negotiate with early investors, for example, more favorable fees or perhaps a more favorable uh, option on liquidity. What the new uh, rules will do is disallow some kind of private letters altogether, some kind of, uh, of arrangements which are viewed as being of that type, either redemption-oriented or information-oriented, would be disallowed if they have a negative impact on all investors uh, who are not the favorite investors, unless it is offered to all investors. So some would be prohibited. Others would have to be disclosed to investors either at the time they invest or at least after the fundraising period is over. So major changes to the way funds operate on a, basically on the basis of a rule directed at the advisors who manage them. Interesting side note on the, uh, the, the side letters is that those are typically with the big institutions, right? And they don't want anyone to know what their deal was. So would you think it could conceivably move them out of you know, investing in some of these funds? What they might become are uh, sort of standalone investors who would have a fund created, often called a fund of one for them, or they would have a separate account management instead of a fund participation. So it may really impact the industry and in ways that I don't know that the commission could or, or was able to fully understand in advance. But we have the rule. It's on the, it's on the books now. It's not effective yet. And the SEC has been sued by six associations right. challenging the rulemaking as being sort of uh, unlawfully or inappropriately uh, hinged upon a new provision introduced in Dodd-Frank that's not really been used to support regulation before. Who exact, what type of funds and managers, advisors, is it going to impact? You know, you hear in the, the general financial media, they talked a lot about hedge funds and whatnot, but mm -hmm. private is a broad term. So. so it is a broad term, and it's right, though, to, to think of hedge funds. The private funds they're aiming for are the funds that are exempt from the 40 Act okay. because they hold securities and either sell to only accredited investors in 100 or less, or they sell only to qualified purchasers in any number. So those are the private funds. That leaves out private real estate funds, private commodity funds. There are other funds that are not in that definition. So it is a fairly narrow application, but that's a major, I would okay. think, at least majority of the funds out there fall into that category. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, again, like I said, the SEC has been incredibly active on the rulemaking front. Another one that came out within the last month or so is the so-called names rule. So what are they doing there? What's the intent? What's the impact going to be? So the SEC is, uh, in, in a way, acting here as almost a content regulator. And what, there's, what they've said with the new rule is, if you use a word in your name that signifies something of generally understood meaning, whether it's as broadly used a term as growth or value, or as, uh, as these days controversial terms such as environmental, social, or governance, ESG, um, you've got to back that up by allocating at least 80% of the, the assets in your fund to support the use of the word. So funds that use these words will have to back them up with 80% policies. And a lot of the rule is dedicated to the process of, of how do you change them if you don't have it? How do you add it if you have it now, but it's at a different percentage? And it, of course, establishing when a fund has to have a policy. There are certain exclusions, uh, fund names that will not be uh, brought into this, but for the most part, very broad application to funds that have traditionally been free to design their own objective and their own strategies, even when they used words in their 
name that had some commonly understood meaning. Okay. So again, sticking with the SEC and kind of moving Finner into the bucket, enforcement, we're seeing a lot of enforcement activity. Um, Reg by is starting to be enforced. The SEC is issuing um, guidance on advisor care obligations. FINRA has expelled some member firms uh, over their failure to uh, adhere to Reg by. Uh, it seems to be accelerating, and they seem to really be now making it clear to the industry that we're taking this seriously, and you better be complying. Give us your insights. You know, I think the SEC was clear that they were going to spend some time teaching people what was required under the regulation before they started taking scalps and holding people accountable in enforcement actions. Well, that time is with us and it's now passed. They've done their teaching, they've done their uh, education of the community. If you're engaged in practices that are not, what, you know, sort of living up to the regulation standards, you'll now get sued, whereas once upon a time you might have gotten a deficiency letter or you might have read that the commission is focused on certain practices that it doesn't like. So firms that didn't read those letters and read those announcements and adapt their practices are kind of now in the crosshairs. Uh, the regulation is pretty clear uh, in terms of its application and its, in, in its uh, uh, sort of multiple uh, subparts and, and the requirements uh, that are baked in. And I think firms would at this point have to be said to be ignoring them at their peril. What about the impact of reg by on some of the other regulatory actors out there? You know, speaking you know, broadly about NASA, mm -hmm. what they're doing in the States. I mean, what are we seeing NASA's response to reg by? Well, you did mention FINRA. They're now basically using the regulation as their primary enforcement tool in the broker-dealer space. If there's a care or obligation issue, that's what it's sounding in. And even uh, today, we were uh, talking with uh, a former president of NASA about their broker-dealer conduct rules, which they, they, meaning NASA, are trying to bring the regulation into the uh, really the NASA code of conduct applicable to broker-dealers and having provisions that correspond directly to, to, to the regulations provisions. The most interesting one, and one we focused on today, because I think our members are particularly uh, affected and interested in this, um, is the requirement that firms consider alternatives. And what alternatives they have to consider, what the meaning of a reasonably available alternative to a broker-dealer will be, where all the, uh, the, the real um, import of their conduct rule, if they adopt it, is, is based. But, that's a new uh, proposal, and we'll be commenting on it uh, before the end of the period in December. Okay, very good. Sticking with enforcement, another big item that's been coming down is the crackdown on private messaging. We all know licensed folks have got to be compliant in their messaging. Apparently, not everyone's been compliant. We've seen a lot of usage of WhatsApp and other private messaging, um, which has fallen outside of that compliance area. The SEC has issued some major fines to some big players in the space. Um, broker dealers, RAAs uh, are being investigated. The SEC has launched a major investigation reportedly on some big advisory firms on Wall Street, include big, big names like Blackstone, Apollo, Carlisle, et cetera. What are you hearing? Should we be, who should be concerned about this? What's the impact to the industry? So it, it is interesting that we've had the level of activity and the level of settlement and payment of fines in the absence of any proven harm. Because right. this is, interestingly, this is a regulation about record keeping. What both the SEC rules for broker dealers and the SEC rule for, rules for advisors require is certain communications to be held in a sort of non-editable and non-deletable format. But when you start using these services that allow for encryption, they allow for deletion, they allow for editing, 
and they don't show up in the uh, books and records of the firm, it's unfortunately you're now not complying because you're conducting business in a way that doesn't allow you to meet the basic record keeping requirements of the two regimes. I mentioned two regimes because the broker dealer crackdown is easier because almost everything that a broker dealer does is subject to its record keeping rules with those requirements. That it not be editable, erasable, changeable, and it be recorded and stored in that format. Advisors are not supposed to keep or not required to keep the same number or type of records as broker dealers are. There's a much narrower type of record that's required. It's sort of the business record of the advisor, meaning uh, communications about the advice that it's giving or the trading instructions that it's providing. So one of the big flashpoints is, is the belief by the advisory industry that they're being held to the same standard as the broker-dealer industry, but yet the rules to them are deliberately different, and yet that's not coming into play as the requests are being made and the, uh, the enforcement uh, folks are, are, are descending on the firm. So that's really the point that we're focused on, which is, you know, I understand the SEC's concern that if a record that's related to your business that you're required to keep isn't being kept in the right format, that's a problem. They should enforce that. But remembering and, and, and sticking to the differences between the advisor regime and the broker regime is important. And that's what I'm hoping is coming about as firms are pushing back and saying, wait a minute, I'm not a broker dealer. I don't have the same obligation to keep every email or, or other communication. So let's talk about what I am supposed to keep rather than what you would like me to keep. But we'll keep an eye on that as well. And there's a lot of activity there. And so the last topic I wanted to touch on, and we could touch on so many, but earlier this year, Adisa, under your guidance, of course, as co-chair of the LNR committee, issued a comment letter uh, in regards to FINRA Notice 2309, which deals with rules impacting capital formation. I think for a lot of our viewers, they're scratching their heads saying, well, what is that one? Don't know about it. Enlighten us. So as we even heard from senior FINRA officials today, FINRA does believe it has a capital raising promotional component to its mission. It wants to make sure the capital markets function correctly, not just for trading, but for capital raising. So it was a broad-based request that said, if there are rules, if there are requirements under those rules, if there are guidelines that we have issued, FINRA has issued under these rules or notices that are impacting in a negative way the capital raising process, let us know. It's all fair game. You name the rule, you name what's bothering you, and we'll look at it. So we responded to that because we asked our members, what about the capital raising process is suboptimal from your experience? And we then translated that membership survey data into a comment letter that we submitted to FINRA. And we're looking forward to, you know, ours as well as everybody else's being heard. And hopefully some rule changes following in its wake. Well, we've seen Adisa's comments letters and, and outreach have direct impact on the regulators. Um, most noticeably this year, most notably, um, I think the Adisa efforts, along with others in the community, uh, convinced NASA, I think, uh, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but convinced NASA to withdraw a proposal which would have, you know, put a 10% set on um, what investors could allocate to some non-traded products. There's a lot of difference of opinion, but what we heard today, I think, is, 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 is worth uh, thinking about, which is they pulled it back. They didn't put it away. They didn't abandon it, but they decided to redo the whole idea from the kind of as they see it from scratch so they still may come back with the same proposal and we may have the same objection but hopefully uh and in particular on the on the limitation what we said was the scope was potentially enormous beyond anybody's contemplation and presumably anybody's desire for it to apply so broadly but what what, what we're going to hopefully see is a revised if anything comes out it'll be a revised set of guideline changes that will reflect our input the input of other industry members 
And I got to give the NASA committee in question credit. They held meetings. They talked to us. We spoke with them in a Zoom format because, it, you know, it allowed them to get on the phone quickly with us, even though their members are in multiple states, and talk candidly and directly and I think without any uh, accusation or, or, or otherwise, just about how we saw the, the guidelines, how we saw the changes, and what we thought were some ways that they could either rewrite them or perhaps in some cases back away from them if they had more data and we were happy to be the sources of that data or the source of that data in our case, if that would help their process. So it's at least nice to see that the regulators do take into you know, their equations feedback from the industry and yeah. thoughtful responses from industry groups like Adisa. So kudos to you guys. Well, thank you. They were, they were terrific with their time and they had the right approach, which was to listen to what we had to say. And we appreciated that chance. Well, I always say so the securities world in this country is probably the most highly regulated industry in the entire world. And LNR and your activities on the Legislative Regulatory Committee are very important. Thank you for giving us a big picture summary, Cliff Notes version of what's happening right now. Very important to all of our viewers. Uh, so again, can't thank you enough. And thank you for tuning in for another episode of Focus on Alternatives brought to you by Adisa. Uh, for all things alternative, great educational content, visit adisa.org. And of course, for your daily news on the alternative space, visit thediwire.com. Thanks so much. And thank you.